To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Jungle Cruise Base, this is Branco Beauty. We are run aground just south of Manaus. All hands are fine. We will wait till the tides change. Over. In just a moment, you'll join me on a most wondrous adventure. To ensure a safe journey, you must remember to stay seated with your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the caterpillar. And do watch your children. See you in Wonderland. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 228 for the week of June 26, 2011. During this past weekend's third annual PNW Mouse Me, a gathering of Disney fans in the Pacific Northwest, I had the privilege of not only attending once again, but the opportunity to sit down and interview another Disney legend and share that interview with you. Jack Lindquist joined the Disney company just two months after Disneyland opened and during his nearly four decades with the company, held many roles from public relations to being unexpectedly named the president of Disneyland. In addition to working directly with Walt Disney, Jack later went on to work on unique advertising concepts, Epcot Center, and many of his admittedly crazy ideas are still found in the parks today. I think you'll enjoy getting a first-hand recount of the growth and the development of the parks and the Disney company as a whole. I'll have a few announcements and then play more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Disneyland is a first and original. Since the day it opened in 1955, more than 100 million people have come here from the four corners of the earth to participate in adventures unique in all the world. Here, tomorrow is today, and yesterday is forever. Within the thematic realms of Disneyland are wonders of every shape and description, medieval castles and rocket ships of the future, explorer canoes... Thank you all again so much for being here. We've had a great time today. We got some more fun to go, and um, uh, it just continues on to the end of the day. Uh, really looking forward to uh, what's coming up next. Uh, I have a special person coming up I'd like to talk to. Uh, we talked earlier about one charity. I'd like to bring Mr. Lou Mangiello up. Uh, the other part of our charity uh, giving is for his charity, Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, Mr. Lou Mangiello? I already got a loose stand-up joke. I haven't even been on here for 10 <laughs> seconds yet. It wouldn't be the same without that, right? Thanks, Mom. <laughs> yeah. So, Lou, you've been doing the Dream Team Project for a number of years, raised all kinds of money. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, rewind back to uh, 2003. I'm working on my first Walt Disney World trivia book. Um, my dad had been diagnosed with cancer, um, so I was going back and forth with him to Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York every day. When I was there, I unfortunately saw a lot of kids who were suffering uh, with the same illness, and I realized that uh, the, the thing that I was writing about, the thing that made me so happy, you kind of take for granted being able to go there. So I wanted to do something, to do some fundraising and not raise money for research that many of those kids would never get to enjoy, but do something that they could experience now. So we wanted to raise money to allow some of those kids and their families to get a break from the hospitals and the treatment and go down to Walt Disney World. Um, over the past uh, eight or so years, uh, we've raised about $100,000 for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, which <laughs> is, 
you know, like with what Deb is doing, it, it really is a testament to you guys and the Disney, it is a community that comes together for events and charity auctions and things like that. Fantastic. Uh, how can we donate, besides the mouse meat and uh, being a part of the charity uh, auction items here, how else can we donate? Uh, you can go to dreamteamproject.org. Uh, you can donate right from there, uh, right to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We have a secure page on their website. Uh, we also have a lot of events coming up later on this year where we do some fundraising, so stay tuned. You're also doing some fundraising for Japan. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, when the um, accident happened in Japan, uh, we wanted to do something. So what we did is I had one of my meets of the month in Walt Disney World in Japan, the country in World Showcase, not the country like right over there. Um, and so what we did was we did a series of three-day auctions that started on June 11th. It's going to end on July 11th doing fundraising for Japan Relief through American Red Cross. Amazing. Uh, what does it mean to, to you to be raising funds here today for your charity? Uh, I, I am incredibly grateful to you and everybody that's here um, for what they're doing for uh, the Dream Team Project and for Deb's charity. Um, you know, you do a lot of good with this event by bringing Disney fans together and you do a lot of good for people that you may never get to meet and may never get to meet you, but uh, make a real difference in people's lives. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. Thank you. Lou, we have a very special guest coming up. I'm gonna turn the floor over to Lou in just a moment, but I wanted to say one thing. We're about the same age and uh, in- And same height. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, in my uh, early 20s, I, I was already a Disney fan, and I read that now there's a president of Disneyland all of a sudden in the early 90s, and I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. <laughs> uh, you might have thought the yeah. same thing. Uh, so I'm very excited. I'm going to pull up a seat and sit on the edge as, I, uh, uh, as the speaker comes up. But uh, Lou is going to do the question and answer here. I'm going to turn the floor over to Lou. Thank you, sir. All yours. Uh, I am, uh, in addition to being very grateful to Don inviting me back for the third year, um, last year I, I had the pleasure of sitting up here and talking with uh, a Disney legend, Bob Gurr, and when he asked if I would come back and do this again this year, and told me who I would literally have the honor of uh, being able to chat with and introduce, um, I was as giddy, giddy as, as Don was when he thought about the idea of being president of Disneyland because in addition to doing very, very many things and having a great impact on the company and the brand and this community that we all love, uh, this next true Disney legend, um, I'm sure has some amazing stories to share. So it is uh, with deepest pride and great, greatest pleasure that I welcome Disney legend, give it up for Mr. Jack Lindquist. BFFs now. Yeah. Me and Jack are BFFs. I'm taller. <laughs> Jack, come on. <laughs> Jack, um, I, I, let's um, let's before we get into the Q and A, why don't you just go ahead and um, and tell everybody just a little tell them a little bit about yourself, Jack, and and then we'll let's not bore them to begin with. Anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. It's wonderful to be in the state. It's not as broke as the state I come from. <laughs> Last time was in Seattle, and some of you may remember, it was June 8th, 1984, and it was Donald Duck's 50th birthday, and Pacific Southwest Airlines painted a 727 jet, and we had uh, Ducky Nash, the voice of Donald Duck. Donald Duck, the character, along with Vicky, Minnie, Pluto, and Goofy, Skiles and Henderson, a comedy team that started at Disneyland and uh, went on to television, Broadway, and just recently, Skiles passed away. But we went on a 17-day, I mean a 17-city, four-day publicity junket for uh, Donald's 50th anniversary. 
We landed at SeaTac. We were an hour late. 2,500 people were on the tarmac waiting for us. Now, difference between today, 1984, is you could get on the tarmac. <laughs> I don't think Homeland Security would let us do what we did then. But it was a wonderful event. We did a, about a 40-minute show, and then uh, we spent the night. We took off and left from here, uh, went to Salt Lake City, eventually Chicago, New York, Orlando, Dallas, and back to uh, uh, California. We uh, landed at the El Toro Marine Corps base, and then they paraded it back to Disneyland, and it was a great 50th birthday for Donald Duck. And, uh, you know, Donald never really did get the credit that he deserved uh, because he was the easiest guy to get along with. <laughs> but he and Mickey, uh, he was so happy. And just a year later, Ducky Nash, the voice of Donald Duck, passed away. So that was a great send-off for Ducky and for Donald. Anyway, I'm here. I'm in your hands. Let's go. <laughs> So, Jack, the, uh, the challenge of today is you're Jack Lindquist. You've got an incredibly storied history with the Disney Company and, and Disneyland, even Walt Disney World, and I want to get into some of those stories. But before then, uh, before you got your start in Disneyland, before you got your start as an adult, when you were a, a wee little boy, is it true that you were actually a child actor and actually were uh, in the old R Gang series? Uh, yes. And, uh, I, but I was not a child actor. I was a child extra. <laughs> you know, when uh, Spanky and Alfalfa were good upon the circus and there was a bunch of kids sitting on benches, I was one of the kids sitting on benches. <laughs> so it was not a very stellar beginning. It uh, sort of uh, led into my early days at Disneyland. I had the good fortune of being the first advertising manager at the park when it opened in 1955. Now that sounds like a, a pretty important job for a young 28-year-old kid. But I was the advertising manager, but there was no advertising department. <laughs> I was the manager of nothing <laughs> and did an outstanding job. Recommended that the manager be compensated much more than he was making at the time. But, uh, you know, the early days at Disneyland, when the park first opened, we had one great thing going for us, all of us. Marty Sparrow was my closest friend. The first day I went to work, we shared desks next to each other in the Felicity office. But the one thing we had going for us the first several years was ignorance. <laughs> and that's not being facetious. We didn't know we couldn't do things. We just did them. If we thought about it, we said, there's no way you can do that. Forget it. And Walt let us do things in the early days because he knew the park intimately. He knew every aspect, down to the minute details of everything that was in and happened at Disneyland. But I don't think he was that sure about operating a park once it opened. So he gave us a lot of freedom. Uh, we did a lot of things. Uh, you could make a mistake. Walt wouldn't fire you. You didn't make the same mistake twice. But uh, we did a lot of things, and ignorance was where it stemmed from. We just didn't know we were doing things that couldn't be done. 
Uh, one, for instance, was in 1957, Tommy Walker, who was director of entertainment at the time, we thought it would be a good idea to have a New Year's Eve party at Disneyland. Uh, New Year's, we, the first two years, we closed at 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> was just another day. We thought, well, maybe there's a way of building a business at, on New Year's Eve. Well, we talked among the people at the park, and they said, well, first of all, do we really want to appeal to a New Year's crowd? Uh, there's going to be a lot of drinking. We don't have booze at Disneyland. Well, there's a lot of people that have wonderful New Year's Eve and don't have liquor. And besides that, young people are looking for a place to go New Year's Eve. The kids are under 18. So we got an okay from management to go ahead and try it. Well, then they said, well, but New Year's Eve is a terrible. What if it rains? We said, wait a minute, we're in the outdoor attraction business. We operate 365 days. If we worry about rain, we never open this park. <laughs> so we went ahead, but I realized one thing. For a New Year's Eve party, we needed at least 6,000 people in the park. Less than 6,000 people the park just doesn't become alive. That's a very minimum number. But to sell 6,000 tickets, you have to be able to sell tickets in advance. Well, 1957, that wasn't done by anybody. Uh, Broadway shows, a circus, no, nobody sold advance sale tickets. So I thought, well, we have to enable Southern California the chance to buy these very expensive New Year's Eve tickets. They were $3.95 apiece. <laughs> we were pushing the envelope. Uh, so I went to a upscale men's store in Los Angeles called Desmond. They had branches in downtown LA, West LA, the San Fernando Valley of Pasadena, and said, we'd like you to sell advanced sale tickets to Disneyland's New Year's Eve party starting Thanksgiving Day through December 31st. They said, sounds very interesting. What's the commission? I said, we don't pay commission. Uh, we want you, but we will include you in all our advertising, publicity, and promotion. Well, Disneyland was still a pretty hot property in 1957. They agreed. We had uh, their location. We then went to Glen Wallach's Music City. It was the world's largest record store, corner of Sunset Line, Hollywood, California. They saw the advantages right away, and they bought in. Went to a market chain called Jorgensen's. Newport Beach, Pasadena, uh, San Gabriel Valley. So then I had eight or 10 places throughout Southern California you could buy tickets to the New Year's Eve party. Long story short, between those outlets, we sold 7,000 tickets in advance to the first New Year's Eve party, and we sold 3,000 tickets at Disneyland. So we had 10,000 people, it was a success. But more than that, I think Disneyland started what today is a major business, uh, advanced sale tickets. And uh, we led the industry in that, and uh, that worked, and it was part of the fun of being at a place called Disneyland in the early days. Well, and you know, that's interesting because that's, you know, part of what you did, part of what you are known for are some of those very unique advertising ideas, dare I call them schemes, um, you know, some of which were very successful, some of them maybe not so. So like 1984, the Olympics had just come into town, you got to do something bigger, you got to do something better. You come up with the idea for gift giver extraordinaire. Tell us about that and 
a, a promotion like that that we really haven't seen again. Well, it, uh, the Olympics were the reason for that, because uh, we look forward to Olympic year being a banner year at Disneyland, because everybody said, oh my God, but the Olympics is the town, it's a winner. Every hotel room was premium a year before the Olympics. Their rates were three times normal, and they were all blocked. Uh, then the Olympics came along, and nobody came. Nobody came to Disneyland. Olympics were fine, but pe more people left town to get away, avoid the crowds of the Olympics that came. So we ended up the year, our attendance was off about 10%. So I needed, knew that we needed to do something spectacular in 1985. It's going to be our 30th anniversary. Nobody celebrated the 30th anniversary. So the 10th, the 25th, the 50th, I thought, why can't we celebrate the 30th? Why can't we make some big? Well, what we did was create the gift giver extraordinaire, went to General Motors, which was the official uh, car of Walt Disney World, and worked with them. And during 1985, gave away 410 General Motors cars. And it was, our attendance was up 20%. It was a record year. I did one smart thing to sell it to management. I sent a memo around saying, here's the idea, and there's a bonus. If we do not do 12 million people between January 1st, December 31st, I'll resign. Now there's a deal you couldn't go wrong with. <laughs> And uh, Ron Miller and Ray Watson were running the company when I wrote that memo and brought the idea and okayed it. And then before the whole thing started, Michael Eisner and Frank Gross came aboard. And the first day I met Michael Eisner was on a plane to Florida. He was sitting in the seat in front of me and Dick Dumas was sitting next to me and told uh, Michael, this is the guy who wrote that memo about uh, 12 million people. And I said, you say we're gonna do 12 million people next year? I said, yep, that's what I said in the memo. He said, and you'll retire if we don't do 12 million? I said, that's right. I said, see, you don't have, you can't lose. You're a winner anyway. And he bought it, we, we did it, it worked. It was a great, great year. Yeah, well, we'll see if this would help get you get to Disneyland if you're sort of on the fence. Every 3,000th person won a Chevrolet. Every 30,000th person won an Oldsmobile. Every 300,000th person won a Buick. And every 3 millionth person won a Cadillac. So if you got a chance to win a car when you go to Disneyland, uh, not, not a bad way way before a year of a million dreams ever came to be. Well, and start with every 30th person won a passport to Disneyland. Every 300th person won a 12-inch stuffed Mickey Mouse. Every 3,000th person won a special 30th anniversary watch. And we turned the main gate into an attraction. We computerized it so that Every 30th person, when there's a winner, a bell's went off. Every 300 more, and the three million fireworks went off. It was a great show. And uh, we also printed on the tickets, every individual ticket, the number that you were in the total number of people ever visited Disneyland. And those tickets were selling two years later just the stupid tickets <laughs> for $10 a piece on eBay. And people were buying them because they thought they were lucky numbers. They bid for, it was a phenomenal. It was crazy and it worked. But, but that's what it is. It's, it's the crazy ideas that work. So 
uh, three years later. Well, we had a lot of crazy ideas. It didn't work either. <laughs> Not crazy people, just crazy ideas. But you're right, the, the crazy ideas work. So three years later, you're, you're thinking about, well, Mickey Mouse isn't going to turn 50. He's going to turn 60. And you're, again, you're on a plane coming back from Orlando. And you look out the window, and you get another crazy idea. Well, you know, and I'd like to make And I say crazy with all due respect, of no, course. No, please. I love it. That's a compliment. Thank you. Uh, I think one of the things is, and it leads to a point about the difference between the 80s, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, today. Uh, when I say I was flying back from Florida, it meant that I was totally away from the company. Nobody could reach me. And that's a luxury that unfortunately, particularly people in large corporations do not have today. I think it's unfortunate because they can never get away from their job. Uh, weekends, traveling, on vacation, they are never out of touch. So I was flying back from Florida luxuriating my six hours on the Delta Airlines with no interruptions, no phone calls, no Michael Eisner's, nothing. <laughs> and we were flying over to Texas. I looked out the window and saw those natural gas fields. They're large circles. And at one point, there were three of them together. I looked down and said, my god, it's a mouse. <laughs> Looked like Mickey. And I started working on it, thinking about it. I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could man made something somewhere and airlines flying north and south, east and west would fly over it and to talk about it. So I uh, got together with my staff at Disneyland and the young lady that worked for me. Uh, she was only 26 years old at the time, never had any experience doing this. I said, I want you to go to Nebraska. I want you to find where we can plant Mickey Mouse and corn and have it grow. And I want something that people look at from 35,000 feet and say, there's Mickey Mouse out there. And we just sheer luck. It was the 100th anniversary of the University of Iowa, so they were looking for something, and they jumped on it real fast. They put us in touch with a farmer, had a square mile, and he was willing to plant the entire field. We had a Disney artist, it's like setting up a card stunt. We had a graph of the whole field. There was something, 800,000 individual corn. Everyone had to be planted. We even had a copyright in corn in the bottom. <laughs> Circle C, Walt Disney Production. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe Walt got into it because Iowa was in a serious drought during that year. And every county in Iowa was lacking rain, except one county in the entire state. The county we planted the corn in, that after rainfall, the corn bloomed. They had 40,000 people in 10 weeks drive on weekend. They drive to the town. You can't see a cornfield that you can see from 35,000 feet. Drive if you build it. They but they, <laughs> they drove by it. Little airport, they had eight planes, old biplane, $5 a piece, you go up and fly over it. Delta Airlines, you're on a route from Seattle to uh, Minneapolis, and they'd fly over it going both ways, and I would say, and if you look out your left window, you'll see Mickey Mouse cornfield. Very conservatively, we got over $10 million publicity off that cornfield. 
NBC, ABC, CBS Evening News all covered it. Every magazine or newspaper. It was a crazy idea, it worked, it was fun. I think it's, I worry that today uh, executives of corporations don't have the free time to just sit back and think dumb ideas and dumb ideas that pay off big. So speaking of another dumb idea, again, all due respect, Thank you. Uh, and talking about money, one of your other ideas, chances are, you guys even today still use, still have, still collect, that made this company a lot of money. And I brought one with me. Because you, sir, are the guy who created the Disney dollar. Thank you. That was another stupid, fun project. <laughs> but it wasn't stupid because you, because this to you wasn't an advertising scheme. This was, you were literally printing money. 100%. I, again, was flying back from London. I'd been on a ship uh, for Epcot, and uh, I was going through francs and marks and British pounds, chains, everything. This is all fun money. We do 11 million people a year at Disneyland. Walt Disney World doing 14 million people a year. We're as big as a whole lot of countries. Why don't we have our own currency? <laughs> so we went back, so it's our management, and we went out and we did it right. We had more safeguards built in. We worked with the Secret Service with the same kind of safeguards against counterfeiting they put in U.S. dollars. The people that printed our dollars, Jeffrey Banknotes, are the same people that print the British crown. Now, this was not, I, I spent a lot of time selling it to our people, because one thing that I found is if you go around trying to sell crazy ideas, you have to convince everybody else you work with that you believe in it and that they have to believe it. I was not creating a promotional thing. I was creating dollars, real dollars. And they cost a lot of money to produce. And the week after they came out, a group from Kellogg's Cereals came out, met with me. And they said, we want to put a dollar in every cornflakes box. That would be a million and a half a month. And they, I said, wonderful, I love the idea. The guy said, well, how much is it going to cost? I said, a buck. He said, no. He said, you don't understand. What's a dis? I said, there is no dis. I said, I'll tell you what, though. If you go to the treasury and tell them that you're going to put a dollar in every box of cornflakes, and they give you a special price, I'll give you the same thing they cover me. <laughs> I never saw them again. <laughs> and it worked, and uh, we had delivered by uh, armored truck with Scrooge McDuck and a uh, squadron of uh, Anaheim and, uh, police on motorcycles, and we did those. And most of the hotels in the immediate area around the park initially started accepting it for hotel bills, for uh, uh, in the bars, in restaurants. And I tried to talk our finance people and say we should set up a commodity exchange. You know, <laughs> Disney dollars, say, selling at 102, <laughs> buying at 99. But uh, I found the finance people didn't have much sense of humor about it. They weren't crazy. They weren't crazy like you. But you, I mean, you probably, you're the only guy in Disney history that everyone's like, you know what, we're gonna just print money. We are literally just gonna print money. And the brilliant thing is that there's hundreds of dollars sitting in that other room in frames and in walls and in, and there's probably millions of dollars just still sitting in people's drawers or sitting in people's scrapbooks. 
Well, the last time that I got a report uh, officially from uh, uh, the finance people at Walt Disney World was 1998. And there was over 205 million Disney dollars out and hadn't been returned. I have no idea what it was, but with that kind of flow, uh, that more than paid for Indiana Jones. <laughs> and, and that's what, I mean, so many of these great ideas, crazy ideas, are, are things that are still found in not only Disneyland, but Walt Disney World too. And another idea you had was the idea of the ambassador, the Disneyland ambassador. And today we still, although it's different today because Jack, they actually allow men to be ambassadors. Unlike the- Not while I was there. <laughs> uh, and that's not totally chauvinistic. I, I, they have some uh, excellent young men that have been ambassadors. The program was not conceived for that. Uh, we're getting ready for our 10th annual, 10th anniversary at Disneyland. I was a member of my boss and said, you know, we ought to have a program a young lady that's employed at the park, and for one year she is an ambassador. She's a spokesperson. She meets important VIPs, comes to the park, and travels wherever we send her. And uh, I had no idea what happened to the memo. Uh, I found out later that he sent the memo up to Walter's studio. About four weeks later, I got a note back with, okay, let's go walk. And uh, I asked Ed, I said, who? He said, yeah, that's the walk. <laughs> he said, let's do it. So we started the program, and it's been very successful. It's not successful. It's one of the things I always felt we we're to blame for not as many as big as it should be. Uh, we had the opportunity of going to people like Pendleton, who were one of our participants at the time. And Pendleton was willing to work with us in coming out with a whole wardrobe built around. We had uh, an opportunity to go to people for cosmetics, jewelry, and we had at the time, Disney wasn't as merchandise-oriented as has been in the last 50, ever since it started Disney stores. But uh, we could have been much bigger than we were. But it's fun, beautiful, wonderful bunch of ladies. And uh, every year they have a uh, reunion and banquet, and it's fun getting together. And it's a good program. Uh, I'm not against men in the program. It's just, it wasn't designed for that. If I had retired, I'd have probably gone down fighting, but I <laughs> would not have uh, uh, gone easily. You know, we're, we're joking about the ideas being crazy and, and some of these uh, things very much out of the box. And I think, the Disney company sometimes, and it really originated with Walt, thought out of the box. And I think he thought out of the box when it came to people in terms of pulling people out of roles, maybe their comfort zones, what they were used to. That happens to you later on. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to go backwards a little bit because I think that's what Walt always did. He took people like the animators and the artists and says, you're going to build me a theme park. Yeah. Um, they took a chance on a guy who was out there selling you know, appliances. You were out there trying to sell appliances and, and work with Disney, and yet you come to, uh, you come to work with and for um, the Disney company. So I, I wanna talk about Walt a little bit and sort of your relationship with Walt, what it was like when you first met Walt and your involvement with him, especially early on at your time at Disneyland. Well, the whole thing is that, you know, in retrospect, and it's, I think most people have a, a, a feeling that all of us in the early days had a 
close day by day association with Walt. And that really wasn't true. Uh, he was always special. We saw him a lot, but uh, we weren't on a, you know, after Walt passed away, a wonderful thing happened at Disneyland. You ran into more and more people that basically were telling you what a wonderful time it used to be having barbecue with Walden's family on Sunday afternoon. I don't think any of that happened. <laughs> uh, Walt was a man totally unique. I never met anybody that had the self-confidence in what he believed in. 100% faith. And, uh, and he was right. He built a Disneyland without five cents worth of market research. When we, uh, later on, when we were talking about Epcot, uh, people would say, well, aren't you gonna do market research? And we'd say, well, Walt never did research on Disneyland. Why would we do research on Epcot? What's well, new? It's not as new as Disneyland was. You've got to believe in, among everything else, Walt was a gambler and a risk taker and uh, just had more guts than anybody ever met in my life. And thank God he did because one of the world's great attractions, great institution that has and is bringing happiness to millions and millions of people around the world on a daily basis came about because of that stubbornness and belief. And I get the sense that his sense of confidence, his belief, was something that was contagious uh, in a good way among the people that worked with him. He always surrounded himself, obviously, with the best peoples. And when Disneyland was first opening, everybody else said, it's a mistake. It's going to fail. It's another one of Disney's follies. But I get the sense from the people that were there working with him, and again, I mean this in a good way, there was a sense of this blind faith in what Walt wanted to do, and you all collectively believed in his ideas. Well, you know, probably the most significant difference, when we opened the park, there were 750 employees. Now, that's a small family. You, got, you knew everybody. Everybody knew you. And uh, I don't think it was blind faith. I think that so many people, like me, I got to see the park for the first time, was about 80% complete. Now, I'd read about some things in the paper, Walt Disney Building Amusement Park in Anaheim. In where? Anna, my God, that's a bad Jack Benny joke. <laughs> Nobody knew where it was, but seeing that park, I, I walked on that park, and it wasn't anything as, they're building a damn city. It's a real, it's an opera house, and a train station, and a city hall. And you look up Main Street, there's a castle up there. <laughs> it's not paper and shade. It's a real big, you know, it was beyond our imagination. So I'm not sure that the 750 young people came together to learn to make some like this work. We're blind faith as much as we're awe-stricken. Uh, it was something so far beyond their imagination that 
And then a walk to the could make them sort of believe it could really happen. And it was a combination. It was uh, just exciting times. Like, uh, you know, Marty Scar and I talked about every opening of a new attraction or a new park, Walt Disney World, Epcot Center, Disney MGM, Tokyo Center, every opening is sort of like D-Day. You wouldn't want to go through it again, but you sure as hell wouldn't want to miss it. Uh, and it was, uh, Marty Starr holds the record for being a participant in the, 11, in the opening of 11 different Disney theme parks around the world. And uh, that record will stand forever. I, um, first of all, I have to say, I, I just noticed you're wearing Mickey Mouse socks, and I just think that's awesome. <laughs> I love the fact you have Mickey's on your socks. <laughs> what else would you I, I know. I just, uh, you know, Jack, there, there's so much more that we can talk, and I hope that you and I get a chance to, to talk again, because I want to talk about your role in Epcot, in acquiring some of the, the countries and some of the ones that worked and some of the stories about things like Morocco, some of the ones that didn't, like the Philippines and Iran, and how close maybe um, we had come to getting some of those. Um, you know, we talked about Walt Disney sort of pulling people out of roles and, and plucking them out and putting them in. The same thing happened to you when you were blindsided and told, oh, by the way, you're going to be the next president of Disneyland. And that happened, obviously, not with Walt, but with Michael Eisner. Well, that, that was a wonderful evening. We were having a uh, uh, recognition dinner for uh, people celebrating their 10th, 20th, 30th year at the park. And uh, went through the whole dinner and show, and uh, Michael spoke, and last thing he said was, he said, oh, by the way, uh, effective 9 o'clock tomorrow morning, uh, Jack Lindquist is going to be the president of Disneyland. <laughs> That's the first I heard of it. <laughs> and uh, I was obviously thrilled. I, I wasn't sure what the job was, but Michael did things like that. Michael may be chairman of the board of the Mighty Ducks. I'd never been to a hockey game in my life. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate being around some wonderful people, different people, over a span of time. Obviously, Walt and Roy were in a world by themselves. And there's a I don't know how many of you have read uh, Michael Eisner's new book, Partners, but he talks a lot about major companies, successful people, it's always a partnership. And uh, Walt and Roy were one of those partnerships. And I think they both need each other, and they're both so different. But I've had the feeling that Without Walt, Mike, uh, Roy could have ended up a manager of a Bank of America in Glendale, California. Now Walt could have worked, ended up working for Warner Brothers Animation. But together, they made a combination were unbeatable. Then following Walt and Roy, there was Card Don. And uh, Card Walker was a great leader of the company. Took over for several years after Walt passed away, there was this reluctance on anybody in Disney to take the leadership. Because Walt was such a one-man Icon, all by himself. No one's going to stand up and say, I'll be the leader. But Card finally did. 
he not only, he and Roy not only opened Walter the World, card last eight years of his life was single-minded me on one thing, Epcot Center, because Walt made that film before he died. And uh, it was one of those magic things from the very beginning, as far as the media was concerned, Epcot Center was an idea that was bigger because we didn't know what it was. Walt didn't know what it was. But the media kept saying, uh, that's wonderful, that's great, but when are you going to build Epcot Center? So Card finally said, you know, we got to build this silly thing because the media expected. So then you decide, what is Epcot? Walt had a beautiful story about that film. 20,000 people living in the Dome City, uh, transportation, five different levels. But the first thing we ran into was, if you start people living in a theme park, then you have all social problems. How about school and churches and people, elections? What if they decided to throw Disney out? <laughs> uh, and all, all the things. And, you know, Walt talked about American Enterprise was showcased the latest of all the future inventions. Well, sounds great. But if you're living in Epcot Center, you're a woman. Do you want 11 million people traipsing through your kitchen looking at the latest microwave? No. You're not going to allow that. So we had to decide that Epcot has to be turned into keeping all the commitments about what American free enterprise can produce turned into a show. I think Future World and World Showcase were an outstanding compromise. Jack, the, when you retired in 1993, you were very quickly and appropriately made a Disney legend the following year. Uh, you have a window that makes you the honorary mayor of Disneyland. And again, appropriately, it reads, Jack of all trades, master of none because of your many roles right. and what you did in Disneyland. Um, I, I wish we had more time to share stories, but I, I want to I leave you, or I want to ask you one final question, especially appropriately enough. Uh, Al Weiss just retired a few days ago. If you could offer advice, because you have seen so much in your career at Disney, and even since you left, you've been able to sort of sit back and watch. If you could give advice to those people who are running the parks today, what would you tell them? I'd tell them to... To read your book. <laughs> buy the book. <laughs> it's got all the answers right there. No, I think I'd tell them to relax. Our product is happiness. And you can't sell that to the public unless you're happy yourself. And yes, it's a business, and you've got to... But also, we're not a cure for cancer. We recognize what we are. We bring happiness to people and relax a little, don't take life so seriously, and uh, keep dreaming because it's a dream business. It always will be. Some of my peers, they meet with quite regularly, are a little bitter about the way the parks operate today, policies and so forth. I try to tell them that, first of all, they couldn't be hired at Disneyland today. The people who work there are so far ahead of what we were, you can't compare it. But it's different. Our day is over. Our world is over. Time to move on. Let them run it. You may not agree with everything, 
But I think the people in the theme parks today have just as much pixie dust and believe in Disney as we did, only it's totally different because they think different. I don't Twitter, I don't tweet, <laughs> and I don't uh, believe you can operate worldwide theme parks out of Florida. I think, but that's not my problem. It's not my decision. I think they're doing a great job. I think if Walt Disney came back today, there'd be a lot of things you might not like, but overall, he'd say, damn good job. It's a great place, it's a great company. Iger is a different leader. Michael was different. Michael, after Frank, was turned into uh, something else. <laughs> but uh, the real strength of Disney Company is not only the parks and leadership that's there, is people like you, because what other company would have a gathering like this of people who just on their own have got together with Don, you, all the people we've met here that put on events that are so great because you believe in the mouse, in the parks, in the business, and that doesn't happen of any other company I know of. And uh, I want to thank you all. It's been a delight. Jack, I, I want to say thank you. It has been a, uh, a true privilege to be able to chat with you. I think your advice for the Disney Company is a great life lesson for everybody. Just relax and be happy and have fun. And we who are here, Don has done something great by bringing Jack here and Jack sharing his time with us. We have a unique opportunity to get a chance to talk one-on-one -on -one with somebody who has seen and done it all. So I ask you to also, please not only go buy his book, but ask him to, to sign it and chat with him because it is a, uh, it is a fascinating story and it, it truly has been a privilege. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in. Big thanks go out to Don Morin, the founder of the PNW Mouse Suite, for inviting me back again, giving me the opportunity to sit and chat with Disney legend Jack Lindquist and, of course, to share that interview with you. Unfortunately, time is always our enemy. There's so much more that I want to talk to Jack about, but we only had about an hour. But to learn more, I highly recommend checking out his book, in service to the mouse. I'll put a link in this week's show notes over at www.radio.com. Click on the podcast link, show number 228. There I'll put a link in where you can purchase the book directly from amazon.com. While you're there, you can also comment on this week's show and the interview with Jack. Be sure and browse the rest of the site while you're there, including our daily blog posts and our Disney book club. We're currently reading Pirates of the Caribbean, The Price of Freedom. We also have three-day Disney charity auctions going on until July 11th, with all proceeds going to the American Red Cross for Japan Relief. Those can be found, again, right in the WDW Radio blog. Be sure and shop at the WDW Radio online store where you can get signed copies of my Walt Disney World trivia books and special new pricing in the shop on all my audio walking tour CDs and downloads. Please come by and visit DisneyMeets.com for more information about upcoming WDW Radio Meets of the Month in Walt Disney World. I'll be posting Julys and August dates and locations very, very soon. You can also find out more information about other events coming up, including the D23 Expo. We'll be back once again this year with a booth at the Collectors Forum. And if you can't make it out there, we are all going to have full coverage, including live video broadcasting and chat from each day of the Expo. 
lots of surprises, special things in store for those who are both attending the expo and those who follow along in the box for all three days. Be sure and visit d23expolive.com. There we have videos from the original expo in 2003, some of the fun we had there, and that's going to be our home base where we'll be able to log in watch and chat we're also going to be having meetups while we're out there probably at trader sam's maybe a couple of meetups in and around disneyland so stay tuned for more information as we get closer quick thanks to my partners and sponsors including mei and mouse fan travel they are my official and recommended travel provider for all your vacation planning needs whether you go to walt disney world disneyland cruise line adventures by disney becky and her team not only give you the best possible prices and discounts but an amazing level of personal service that is their hallmark. Check them out over at mousefantravel.com. And when you come to Walt Disney World, maybe you're traveling with your extended family. Maybe you want something a little bit different, like a private pool, a spa, kitchen, game room, multiple master bedrooms, and more. You can select from two-bedroom condos up to seven-bedroom homes by visiting allstarvacationhomes.com. And when you're in Walt Disney World, be sure and visit Bongo's Cuban Cafe in downtown Disney for authentic Cuban cuisine, great live music and dancing on Friday and Saturday nights, indoor and outdoor seating, three bars, an express window, lots more. You can also check them out over at bongoscubancafe.com. And if you want to stay right in the heart of Walt Disney World at one of my favorite places to stay, the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin is located right in between Epcot and Disney's Hollywood Studios. They've got 17 world-class restaurants and lounges. You've heard me talk about Blue Zoo and Shula's and the Fountain. I think the Heavenly Beds are the most comfortable beds on property. They've got the spa, lots of other Disney benefits, a great themed pool. Check them out over at swananddolphin.com. As always, my friends, and you are my friends, and to that end, a big thanks to everybody that came by the table and said hi, and, and I got a chance to meet over at the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meet. That is what it's all about. It's that sense of community uh, that you guys really pulled together, and true testament to my belief that we are friends, whether we have met or not. Uh, if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share a link on Facebook or talk about the show in your favorite Disney online forum. And please come by, review the show and the iPhone apps over in iTunes. All that's really, really appreciated. And please remember that it is never too late to start doing what you love and pursuing your passion. So start taking those first steps now. And when you do, always keep moving forward. Thank you again so very much for taking the time and tuning in this week. So until next time, have a great week, everybody. See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Emily from Newport News, Virginia. I met you a couple weeks ago in Japan and Epcot, and I just wanted to tell you thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to my mother and uh, my aunt and I. We had uh, such a nice time meeting you. We've been longtime listeners, and it was great to finally meet you in person, and we couldn't stop talking about how friendly and personable you were our whole trip. So you really made um, our Disney vacation that much more magical. And I uh, just wanted to let you know we spent a lot of time this trip trying to do the little things that we uh, have heard you talk about on your show, and uh, we tried egg rolls in Adventureland, and I tried the carrot cake uh, cookie at the writer's stop in the studios. It was amazing. We had an excellent vacation, and I'm really glad that you got to be uh, a little part of that because you're such a big part of our lives every day. Uh, thank you for all that you do, Lou, and keep, keep it coming. All right? Have a good one. Hi, Lou. This is Jenna from Seattle, Washington, and I'm calling you from Epcot. Um, I am about ready to go into World Showcase. I think I'm going to start with Canada and work my way around and go explore. And um, I'm on day two um, with my family on our Walt Disney World vacation. Uh, we have tomorrow left in the parks, and then we leave on a five-day cruise on the new Disney Dream, which we are so incredibly excited for. Um, but I also wanted to call and say that yesterday when we were at the Magic Kingdom, um, part of the reason why we had so much fun is because I had listened to all of your audio guides, and I have... I was able to look for things I never would have even known to look for and just all the hidden details and all the secrets and stories and everything. So I really appreciate that, and I can't wait for you to release the rest of the audio guide so I can go and discover some more little hidden tidbits. So thank you so much for the show. I absolutely love it. I listen to it every week as I drive into work and listen to it while I work. And then on my 
drive back home. So thanks for everything, and uh, keep on making those audio guides. I can't wait for those. All right, thanks, Lou. Having a blast at Disney World. Bye. Hi, I was just thinking of ideas for the Wonders of Life Pavilion, and I was thinking of some sort of incorporating Wally into it because it's a more current Disney Pixar movie that everyone knows, and it deals with obesity. So there you go. There's incorporating the life and wellness part in it. So that was just my idea. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou. Jen Tremley from Bristol, Connecticut. Just finished listening to this week's show about the Wonders of Life, and um, I just thoroughly enjoyed it, as I always do. Um, but it was nice to uh, take that retrospective back to that pavilion. Uh, I remember when it first opened in 1989. Um, I actually did enjoy the pavilion. Um, I didn't think there was a whole, whole lot there in the beginning, but um, as I got a little older, um, I got to see and understand things a little bit better, um, and it was a lot of fun to walk through there. Cranium Command was probably one of my favorite shows um, at Epcot at the time. Um, and I did go on Body Wars, even though I wasn't a uh, huge fan of the simulator rides. Um, but it was a, it was a nice pavilion. I mean, the Sensory Fun House was just uh, fun to walk through and 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 you know try the hands-on exhibits. And it's it's sad to see that uh, they're not using it, um, you know, in its capacity, and they're only using it for like food and wine or for uh, flower and garden uh, garden uh, festival. But um, I don't know. Hopefully, maybe within the you know near future, they can get another sponsor and get somebody else back in there and kind of revamp it. But I have a feeling that uh, the days of Cranium Command and and Body Wars and all that are over. Um, but it was nice to take to walk down memory lane and kind of remember those those uh, those cool attractions from way back when. Um, especially when I was a kid, like I said, I, I I was there when that pavilion opened in '89, and uh, it was um, it was a cool place. And I'm sorry to see that it's gone. But anyway, I uh, just want to say thanks again for all you do, and I appreciate the podcast, and I look forward to next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye. You've got a friend.